0: Well, let me just say that I am grateful that uh, you are here today and I'm grateful that you've come to join us for worship this morning and as you've probably been able to ascertain not only is Will and his family out of town, but Ted and his family are out of town as well and they are traveling somewhere way out west. I'm not exactly sure. They were spending two weeks in their car together. (laughs) So I'm sure that they are actually having a wonderful time and I know that they are thinking of you and praying for you this morning and we're excited that you're here if you got your bibles and i certainly hope that you do would you please take them and turn with me to first john first john 4 we're going to continue our study through this book as we have been on this journey now for a number of weeks and we're going to continue this morning we're going to come to verses 7 through 11 today and in verses 7 through 11 and we're going to circle back to the again to the issue of love uh, that john has already talked about to us in previous passages, and we're going to hear him tell us once more today that we need to love one another. And it was that whole one another thing that I got to thinking about this week. Uh, the word, the two words one another in English really are, are the translation of one Greek word "alelon," And that, that Greek word is just one word but we put it in two. We make it one another. And, and, and I got to thinking about the commands that go along with one another. Commands like like love one another and forgive one another and greet one another, things along that line. And, and there was a researcher who had put together all the different times that those words come together in, in the in form of a command. And really there are 100 separate instances of that taking place in the New Testament. 97, excuse 94 of those times, they come all in one verse, or in, in in a verse, you know, in separate verses that they come through. And what's interesting is that when he when he put these one another commands together, he did so by trying to categorize them. What do they mean? How did how was the author using these one another commands? And he wound up figuring out that a third of the time, these one another commands actually were used by way of of of, of the theme of unity. For example, one another command like this would be. Be at peace with one another. Do not grumble against one another. Uh, Be of the same mind with one another. Those are the one another commands that kind of point toward a unity among the believers. Another third of those one another commands really dealt with the issue of love, like what we're going to see this morning. Love one another. Bear in love with one another. Be devoted to one another in love. Commands like that, about a third of the time, that's how it was used. But additionally, another 15% kind of fell under this category of, of, of showing humility to one another. Commands like this, be subject to one another, wash one another's feet, regard one another as more important than yourself, so forth. Those kind of things. So if you look at that, about 75% of the time, those, those one another commands just fall into those three categories. But then the other 25% kind of are, are thrown out and they're similar in various ways, commands like this, dealing with, with, with being encouragement to one another, praying for one another, comforting one another, showing hospitality toward one another. And there's even four instances in the New Testament where it says greet one another with a holy kiss. So some of you have already probably done that this morning. What I found interesting was that all of these one another commands, you know what they involve? Doing good to each other. Lifting one another. Be encouraging to one another. Invariably, we find these one another commands there to produce positive outcomes in our lives. Not once will you find a command, a one another command in the New Testament that deals with doing something negative to your brother or sister in Christ. Not one time. As a matter of fact, Ray Ortland has said this using one another commands to tell us, it doesn't tell us to humble one another, doesn't tell us to scrutinize one another doesn't tell us to pressure one another or to to embarrass one another, to corner one another, to interrupt one another, to defeat one another, to sacrifice one another, to shame one another or to run one another's lives or to intensify one another's sufferings. You will never find a command in the New Testament that remotely resembles those. In fact, as Ray Ortland goes on to write, based upon the one another commands of the New Testament, the kind of God we really believe in is revealed in how we treat one another. The lovely gospel of Jesus positions us to treat one another like royalty. And then he writes this, and every non-gospel positions us to treat one another like dirt. Then he says this, We will follow through horizontally on whatever we believe vertically. Did you catch that? Let me me repeat that again. We will follow through horizontally in our lives and how we treat one another and how we live amongst one another. We will follow through horizontally based upon how we understand vertically God's love for us. Zortland says, the kind of God we really believe in is revealed in how we treat one another. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our text from 1 John this morning. As I mentioned, John has once again circled back to this whole issue of love. He's discussed the same issue already back in chapter 2 and then again in chapter 3. And now he's going to take the most extensive look at it that he's done. He starts here in verse 7 and goes all the way into chapter 5. And he talks about love the whole time. And as I, Howard Marshall, says, the thoughts that are expressed here are largely repeat of what John has already said previously. Martin Lloyd-Jones has even written this. He said John has actively finished what he was going to tell us at the end of verse 6 in the chapter. But now what we find from this point forward is a kind of re-emphasis upon what he has already been saying. And so some of you may be going, well, why in the world do we keep coming back to this same issue over and over again? Does John not know how to land the plane? He just keeps circling the airport, but he doesn't touch down. Why do we continue to talk about love over and over and over again? Why is it so important to him? Well, perhaps the reason that love is so important to John that he would go back and repeat it and talk about it over and over again is because it was so important to Jesus. You remember the night before Jesus was taken and crucified? We've discussed this numerous times already in this epistle. Jesus met with his disciples there in the upper room and he poured into their lives the last moments of teaching into their lives. And over and over and over again in those last moments, which John records for us in his gospel, Jesus said words just like this from John 13. Verses 34 and following, he says, A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Later in chapter 15, verse 12, he wrote this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then in verse 17 of chapter 15, he says, These things I command you that you love one another. Friends, for Jesus to repeat that command over and over and over again and for John to go back and write about it extensively over and over and over again means that you and I need to hear about it over and over and over again. We need to appropriate the truths of this love command into our lives because as we will see, the kind of God that we believe in will ultimately be revealed in how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So with that as an introduction this morning, let's look. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Hear the words of John under the direction of the Holy Spirit as he writes this. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for the admonition that it puts in front of us. The encouragement, the exhortation, the drive. Father, my prayer this morning is that you would transform our lives by the power of your word, working through the love that you have displayed to us through Jesus on the cross and the love that we have inside of us from the Holy Spirit that is bringing us to conviction and bringing us into an understanding of your truth. Use those things today to, to, to move us to become more and more like you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now what I hope you understood and hope I hope you picked up on as we were reading through this passage is that verse 7 and verse 11 have, a, have the same emphasis. Verse 7 is an exhortation. It is really a, a, it's it's a command. It actually is the way that it's issued there. It serves as a command for us. It says, beloved, let us love one another. That's verse 7. And then it ends this paragraph in verse 11 with more of a, something that states the plain duty of the the believer. And the plain duty of the believer says, we also ought to love one another. So you've got those two things that bookend this paragraph. We are to love one another, and that is our plain duty is to love one another one another. And sandwiched in the middle of those two verses of 7 and 11 are all of the different reasons for why we ought to love one another. So so what John does, he doesn't just tell us what we are to do, he gives us the reasons why we are to do it. He tells us all of the the justification, the supporting data that we need to know for why that action ought to be taking place in our lives. Now let me just tell you as we look through this, you're going to find that John's thoughts aren't necessarily as as linear as we might like for them to be Paul for example he's, he's typically very linear in his thinking he will state a command or he'll state a doctrinal statement and then from that doctrinal statement will flow all of the different things that we need to know as a result of that doctrinal statement John doesn't really write that way John actually kind of goes about it the opposite direction he starts with sort of the philosophical thought he'll start with sort of a practical understanding of things and he'll end up with the doctrinal statement the point made is going to be the same either way. But with, with John, as Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, he's more like, he thinks more like sort of a poet or a mystic a little bit in how he, he brings things to the point. So we're going to have to do that a little bit this morning as well. But what I want you to note is that in verses 7 and 8, John introduces this thought about why we are to love one another. And he says, let us love one another. Why? For love is of God. In other words, he tells us that love issues forth from God, that God is the origin. God is the source of all true and genuine love. The next thing he says is that everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And in fact, he even goes on and repeats the opposite of that, gives us the mirror image and says, look, if you don't love others, you're not of God and you're not born of Him and you don't know it.'" And so what he's telling us there is that if we share in the life of God, if we have truly been connected to Him, then we will manifest in our lives the same essence of love that God is. We will emulate it. He emanates love out and we take it and we emanate it out to others. That's what he, and then it's only after he said that that does he come to the, the doctrinal statement that he slips in on the very last of verse 8. And there he tells us that God is love. Now really, that doctrinal statement in verse 8 serves as the basis for why John can say that true and genuine love originates with God to begin with. It's because God is love that he can also say that that when it's demonstrated among believers, then such love gives evidence of, of them truly belonging to God. I want us to look at each of those issues this morning and kind of bring them together and provide some nuance to them. But if if we were asking ourselves a question this morning, since he tells us that, beloved, we are to love one another, and we ask the question, well, why are we to love one another? Well, the first point on your outline this morning that I want you to see is this. Loving one another is necessary because God is love. Love flows from Him. And doing so gives evidence that we belong to Him. I want us to see how that works together in verses 7 and 8 this morning. Let's look a little closer. When when, when, When John says that God is love, we should understand that what he's saying is not merely that God is a loving God, though He is a loving God. When he says that God is love, John is not merely saying that God advocates love, though God does advocate love. When John says that God is love, he is saying something so much deeper than that, however. What he is saying is that love is an essential attribute of God. It is an essential aspect of His being. As Greg Allen has written, God can never be anything other than love because He Himself is love. He has always been love and He always will be love. Therefore, a definition of love must always include God's being and a definition of God's being must always include love. In effect, when John tells us that God is love, he is saying that there is not one solitary minuscule particle or thing about God that cannot be understood in light of the fact that in His very essence, He is love. Now, I want you to know this verse, this particular phrase, God is love, is is one of the most well-known verses, well-known phrases in the Bible, even among those folks who don't even read the Bible and, and really don't care about much what the Bible says. You'll find that phrase, God is love, you'll find it printed everywhere. Unfortunately, what you also don't find is the context in which it was written, printed to go along with it. As a matter of fact, the truth is, is that many in the world use this phrase to justify their own definition of love which honestly bears no resemblance whatsoever to the biblical understanding of love to which John refers here. As one writer has put it, proper interpretation requires allowing John to define what he means by love. And he goes on to define what he means by love, as we'll see momentarily, by saying that God sent His Son into the world to die for our sins so that we might live. So... Just because John says that God is love, that does not mean, as many misconstrue, that all love is of God. Brothers and sisters, the simple fact that two people can say that they love one another does not mean that their love is necessarily holy. If what they define as love is contrary to and runs counter to what the Scriptures define as genuine and legitimate love, then they cannot claim the fact that since God is love, then God will by necessity approve of their definition and of their demonstration of it. If you remember, John began this entire epistle by not telling us that God was love. He actually started by telling us another essential aspect of God in chapter 1, verse 5. He said God is light. And when he told us that God is light, if you recall, we studied there, that 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 means that God is holy, that He is pure, that He is completely holy, and that everything about Him is holy. Everything about Him is love, and everything about Him is holy as well. And so when the essence of love is not only... God is not only in His essence love, but He is pure holiness. And therefore we can accurately say that the love that God is, is a holy love. It is a pure love. And as we have been seeing and as we will continue to see this morning, it is a self-sacrificing love. So since God is love, then John's logic is, is that for those of us who claim a personal relationship with God we must of necessity reveal His love and how we live. I mean, after all, love flows from God because He is the ultimate source of all true and genuine love. And John says that love is of God. Furthermore, John reveals that, that since God is love and since love flows from Him, then the true child of God, the true one who is connected to Him by faith, the one who's been born again into the new life that He offers, well, He will share in that divine love. John's logic, though it's not necessarily linear, makes perfect sense. You know, when I go to my parents' house, and, and when we go up to Caroline's parents' house up in South Carolina, when we go to those houses, you know, inevitably I, I stop and I look at the pictures that my parents and her parents have on the wall of us when we were little kids. And I stop and I look at those. It's not because I forgot what I look like. I mean, I know what I look like. It's not because when I look at pictures of me and her, I like, well, I think that, you know, I I just, I love the outfit that we had on her. I love the hairstyle that we had. And believe it or not, I had a hairstyle at one point. (laughs) I don't stop and look at those pictures because I'm trying to see us. Do you know who I'm looking for when I look at those pictures? Particularly when I look at pictures of Caroline. You know what I see? I see my kids. When I look at her when, when she was a child, I see my children. I mean, they're like spitting images of her. And listen, nobody ever comes up to me and says, Wow, I cannot believe your kids look like their mother. No one ever says that. No one ever says, I just can't believe that y'all have had four kids and they all look like her. No one says that. You want to know why? Because it's expected when you have children that they will take on a lot of your, your characteristics and a lot of your traits. You expect your children to look like you. When I see them, I'm not surprised that my daughters look like her. I expect it. Why? Because they're her children. That's exactly what John is stating here. He's not talking about our physical attributes, but he's saying if you're a child of God, it's expected that you will look like God. You will look like Him in how you live. You'll look like Him in how you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ. You'll look like Him in how you love one another. That is how you can know for sure that you have been born of God. This is the third time John has made this point in his text. And he's hammering it home. Do you want to know if you're truly a child of God? Then do you love the brothers and the sisters in Christ? But the other is equally true. If you don't display love for your brothers and sisters in Christ... If you don't live a life of love the way that God loves, then you have no reason to claim that you belong to Him, John says. The implication is clear. Brothers and sisters, if we have truly come to know God and have been born again, then we must love one another. Our love for one another is the hallmark characteristic that testifies to whom We belong. And that's what John hammers home to us in verses 7 and 8. And we need to get our hands around that. But then he goes on to define love not only by who God is, but by what God has done for us. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, in this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Does that sound familiar to another verse of Scripture? Maybe the most popular verse of Scripture? John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Does it not also sound familiar to a word, the verse that Paul wrote in Romans 5, verse 8? But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, if you take take John 3, 16, and you take Romans 5, 8, and you jam them together, do you know what you get? 1 John 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Friend, this is the message of the Bible. This is the great story of all of Scripture from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. Particularly in the New Testament, what we find is that it is the love of God that is only finally and truly known when you look and see what God has done for us and in us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what all the Old Testament pointed to. It's what all the New Testament testifies to. That the Messiah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, has come and has been sent by His Father because of His Father's love for sinners. That's what John tells us in verse 9. But I want you to know, even as good as that is, we could stop right there and, man, we could shout for a while just on that. But verse 10 catapults it even farther. If you, if you stop at verse 9, you miss the full heights to which John wants to drive us to. Because notice what he says in verse 10. He says, in this is love. Listen, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What that tells us is that God's love for us displayed in the sacrificial death of His Son was not in response to our love for Him. This was not an arrangement in which God says, okay, you finally have showed me a little bit of love and so now I'm going to just turn around and give you some in return. That is not how the Bible describes God's love for us. It tells us that He loved us when we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were still enemies of God without hope and without life in this world, as Ephesians 2 verse 1 tells us. And that's incredibly important that we recognize. John tells us that God sent His Son that we might have life. That means that apart from Him, we're dead. That means we have no hope apart from Him. You may have physical life, but if you do not have spiritual life that accompanies your physical life, you are just existing. But the Bible has said that He has come to bring spiritual life to those of us who also have physical life, that we might live eternally. Because apart from that, our only future is that of death. It's only of hopelessness. The Bible tells us that we are by nature children of wrath. We are aliens and we are strangers to the life of God. We are at enmity with Him. People by nature do not love God. Our natures are carnal. And we are apart from His grace. We would remain His enemies with no life and no hope were it not for the fact that God loved us first. If we want to understand the love of God, if we want to understand what it's like, then we have to come to understand what John says here and that the testimony of the New Testament speaks to us that men and women, boys and girls are in the dregs and the depths of sin deserving nothing but God's wrath with no hope and no one to help Him were it not for God loving us first. and Amazingly, that's what John tells us happens. Tells us that he sent his only begotten Son. And listen, that's an important verb. I don't have time to go into all of it, but let me tell you something. You and I were never claimed that we were sent into this world. We were born into this world. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was sent into this world, which testifies to the fact that he existed before he was sent, which means that he is the eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father, co-eternal. He could not have been sent if he already was not. Does that make sense? So when it says that he was sent, he came into the world because God the Father sent him. And listen, where did he send him? Into the world, into this place, into this world. When he was born, where was he born? Where was he laid? In a manger, in a stable, in a cattle trough. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who stretched the stars into space. The one who breathed life and gave life. When he came, was born, no place for him in the end. He was born in a cattle trough among the dirty squalor of a stable. That's where the Lord of lords and the King of kings was laid. Not only was He born into this world, but He was born to a people. He was sent to a people. A people who despised Him. A people who rejected Him. A people who refused Him. A people that John tells us that He came into His own and His own received Him not. Ultimately, in their hatred of Him, they took Him and they beat Him and they whipped Him. They refused to accept His message. They ripped the beard from His face. They spat upon Him. They slapped Him. Then they forced Him to carry His cross up Golgotha's hill. And there, to completely strip Him of all dignity, they ripped His clothes from His body. They laid Him down and nailed His hands and His feet to the cross. They lifted him up after they had crushed a a, a crown of thorns upon his head. And then they gambled for his clothes at the bottom of the cross. And they did all that and then they mocked him. They made fun of him. And all the while he hung there, suspended between heaven and earth. And John tells us he did it out of love. Nothing else but love. It wasn't because we loved him first. He hung there and died so that you and I might be set free from the penalty of sin that we deserve. No other reason, no other way for us to ever make it were it not for his love displayed for us in such a crucial way in this the love of God was manifested that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that tells us just how serious our sin is that it necessitated God in the flesh dying for us friend I want you to know there is never going to be a sin that has ever been committed or will ever be committed, that will not one day be punished. From the whitest of white lies to the most heinous sin that you can imagine, they will all be punished. One day we will either stand before God on our own and God will punish us because of our sin or we will stand before Him forgiven because He has punished Jesus Christ in our place. Jesus Christ was sent to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin, to be the propitiation for our sin, to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. That's exactly what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. John just says it this way God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Brothers and sisters, This is how God's love is defined. It is not selfish. It is not proud. It is not puffed up. It does not keep records of wrong. It does not say, I'll love you if you love me first. No, God's love has been manifested by going to the extreme measures of sending His one and only Son into this world filled with men and women, boys and girls, who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Rebels who hate Him. And reject Him. Nevertheless, He has looked upon us in our helpless estate. And He has loved us in spite of our sinfulness. And He died so that we might be saved. And why did He do this? Why did God send His Son? Why did He love us this much? Because of no other reason than because of His self-generating Friends, I want you to know, make no mistake about it, verses 9 and 10 contain a great collection of deep theological and doctrinal points. But in their essence, they also define for us the greatest expression of love ever known. And with such an expression of love, John concludes this section by saying in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Note the second point on your outline this morning. Why are we to love one another? Because loving one another is necessary among believers because God displayed His love for us in the sacrificial death of His Son who took our place so that we could be saved. Quote Martin Lloyd-Jones once again. He says, in light of such a message, how could any of us look at all this and believe it and not be lost in love to God? How can we contemplate these things and not be utterly broken down? How can any hatred remain in us? How can we do anything but love one another as we contemplate such amazing love? How can we look at these things and believe them and not feel utterly unworthy and ashamed of ourselves and feel that we owe all and everything to Him and that our whole lives must be given to express our gratitude, our praise, and our thanksgiving? As I said at the beginning, the kind of God that we believe in will ultimately be revealed in how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. How you live and how you love your brothers and your sisters on the horizontal level will be be predicated on how you understand and believe about God has loved you on the vertical level. Consequently, John says... Beloved, God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So in this passage, John has identified the plain duty of the Christian. And he's given us the reasons for it. It leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Because God is love, and because we are the recipients of His love, the plain duty of Christians is to love one another. So let me ask you this morning, are you practicing that love? Are you loving self-sacrificially? Does your life reflect the nature of God? When others look at you, do they see God's love flowing from you? Or do they see bitterness? Do they see anger? Do they see contempt? Friend, I want you to know that love for the brethren, love for one another, that is the hallmark characteristic of the believer. And how you love one another will be predicated on what you truly believe about God. And that leads me to the last thing I want to say. If you're here this morning, and to this point in your life, you have never truly considered the love that God has for you, you've taken it for granted. Maybe you have just thought to yourself, well, it's not something that I want to deal with right now. What I want you to know is that you should not leave this place today until you have truly considered the truth about what John has revealed. That your sin is so great that it necessitated Jesus Christ dying in your place. You could not have atoned for your own sin. No human being can ever atone for their own sin. It took the perfect, sinless, holy, righteous Lamb of God to atone for your sin. And by His atonement, He offers you life Eternal life. And He tells you that if you will repent of your sins, confess Him as your Lord and Savior, and believe in your heart that He has been raised from the dead, He will save you. And He will give you that eternal life. With every fiber in my being, I invite you this morning to consider that truth. Do not leave this place today before you have contemplated the love that God has displayed by sending His Son Jesus for you. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.